You're listening to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University, and I'm your host of Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, we've got two things coming up for you. First, Dr. Joaquin Chapa, who's an OHSU internal medicine resident, is here to discuss his latest paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings entitled, Interpreting the Effectiveness of Cancer Screening from National Population Statistics? Is it sound practice? And Dr. Chapa is gonna do such a spectacular job of taking you through this paper, you absolutely will not wanna miss this. Next, I'm here in the studio with Emerson Chen, who's a GI oncologist, and he's gonna take me to task for some of my comments on the polo trial, but I'm gonna double down and I'm gonna raise him one as I outline what the correct randomized control trial would have been for Olaparib. You won't wanna miss this discussion. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next. Go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions, and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Joaquin Chapa. Dr. Chapa is a graduating internal medicine resident here at OHSU. He's going on to do a pulmonary critical care fellowship right here at OHSU, which is home base, Portland, Oregon, for him. He did his undergraduate at Stanford University, where he was a distinguished runner. Then he went on to the University of Chicago, Pritzker School of Medicine, where he also trained under Dr. Adam Sifu, with whom I've trained and with whom I've written a book. And it is my pleasure to invite Dr. Chapa here on the podcast to discuss his latest work. Dr. Chapa, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Vinay. Hey, what's that you have in your hand there? I have a copy of Ending Medical Reversal. Is that a hardcover copy or? It's a paperback. Yeah. How'd you get that in your hand? He handed it to me about 15 <laughs> seconds ago. <laughs> oh, shoot. Uh, well, I guess listeners should know that as long as we're on the subject, uh, that the paperback edition of uh, Ending Medical Reversal is out. Well, I don't know how, how we came on that topic. Anyway, let's talk <laughs> about what brought you here. Interpreting the effectiveness of cancer screening from national population statistics. Is it sound practice? Now, this is something... This is something that you've been working on for quite a while. Um, I think maybe over a year, is that fair to say? Yeah, the whole process start to finish, yeah, over a year. Start to finish. And it was a deep dive. I feel like you were you were part resident, but mostly investigative journalist. How would you characterize it? Yeah, it really was, it, it, it's research, but it really is more about digging into the the nuts and bolts at a pretty granular level of how our mortality statistics get built from the ground up yeah and i and i think that's that's just and we're going to talk about that over the course of 
of the next few minutes. You know I have a master's in journalism, don't you? No, shut up. You yeah. do? Yeah. Really? Yeah, that's what I did my, my last year of, of running track. I had a year of athletic eligibility just uh-huh. hanging out after I graduated. At Stanford, yeah. And so I went to the University of Oregon, and I needed to do something academic so I could be on the track team. Uh-huh. And so I did a master's in journalism really just kind of for fun. So you really are an investigative journalist. Yeah. Oh, the first time I've actually used that degree. <laughs> oh, that's great. I actually do sometimes occasionally, you know, talk to journalists and, and they point out that, you know, a lot of the work that, that I do or I've been a part of um, and a lot of the work they do is actually not that dissimilar. Um, maybe we aim for a different publication outlet, you know, a peer-reviewed paper, maybe rather than um, a paper that's actually read by anybody, but uh, that might be a difference. They actually reach more people. But, you know, the best investigative journalists and the best um, descriptive um, science is really kind of just meticulously counting up things. Mm -hmm. They get to write in a more fun style than we do. They do. They get to write it better, and uh, and they have a few more readers, at least uh, than some (laughs) of my papers. Hopefully this podcast will change that, and this paper will be read by many. I guess where to start on this paper... I think, you know, maybe about two and, a, two and a half years ago, you and I were talking, and we were talking a little bit about all sorts of things, um, and one of the things that came up was the sort of gap between what had been shown in randomized controlled trials of cancer screening and what was being seen in terms of time trends, in terms of real-world mortality statistics. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, maybe we'll just pick one example, that prostate cancer example. That's a, I think that's an example you delve into in the paper. I'm wondering if you can kind of just explain to listeners, what is this, div- you know, what is this difference, this chasm, this gap? What do we see in the randomized trials, and then what do we see in the real world? Yeah, so basically we have a couple large randomized control trials of prostate cancer screening that have been done. One in the United States, that's the PLCO trial, and one that was done in Europe, Uh, across a number of different countries. And the PLCO trial shows no significant mortality benefit Mm -hmm. uh, in the screening arm versus the non-screening arm. Mm -hmm. And in the the European trial, Mm -hmm. uh, it shows a very small benefit in the screening arm uh, compared to the no screening arm. And both of those data points are really discordant with what we see in the population level uh, mortality trends from prostate cancer, which show a 50% reduction roundabout um, in prostate cancer mortality in the era in which PSA screening was being done in Mm -hmm. the United States. And those two facts don't match up, and people interpret those facts differently depending on what they would like to believe about prostate cancer. (laughs) I think... You've said it very perfectly. Um, I think you're right. So there's this, you know, we see, and, you know, there have been several randomized trials of cancer screening, and if you pull them all together, you're going to see maybe 15, 20% reduction in prostate cancer-specific mortality. Uh, We didn't talk about all-cause mortality, but there's Mm -hmm. nothing there. But uh, there's no, I mean, nothing there, i.e. no benefit has ever been shown there. But at least prostate cancer-specific mortality, you see some modest uh, reduction, as you mm-hmm. point out. But in the real world, you see sort of a dramatic reduction in mortality in terms of population statistics. And this is the sort of gap that this is where the paper started. And I guess when you started with this, um, um, I think, and I, I really want to credit you with this because I don't think listeners will fully, I, I wish I could kind of take them through the process. So we started off with this observation that there was this difference. And then, you know, I think you and I talked about it and we said that like what you're going to set out to do is you're going to try to really understand where these numbers come from. 
And and I want to give one little bit of background um, for the listeners, which is, you know, when we talk about screening, we talk about like the end point is, did the person die of prostate cancer? And that's different than did somebody die? Because there is no dispute between you and I or any other person if somebody's alive or dead. It's as clear as black and white, pregnant, not pregnant. There's no somewhat pregnant. There's no somewhat dead. It's it's crystal clear. No arguing about that. No arguing about that. But when it comes to um, did they die of prostate cancer, now you kind of open up a can of worms. You know, you spend a lot of time in the unit and you spend a lot of time on general medicine services and you've seen many, hopefully not many, but some of your patients die. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, we know 30-day mortality Medicare beneficiaries are like 11%. So that's, you know, people you know people who train, they see patients die. And I guess I'd say that there are certainly some cases where, as a doctor, you're going to say, it is very clear this person was otherwise healthy, and then they died of pancreatic cancer. Boom. Mm-hmm. But there are a whole bunch of cases in medicine that we see that we know this person had heart failure with a low ejection fraction. They had prostate cancer that was biochemically recurrent but not metastatic based on radiography. They also had COPD and they may have required, you know, some HOMO2 requirement and they had some frequent heart failure exacerbations, you know, something like this. And so then then somebody may die um, in this sort of setting with multiple medical problems going on. And, you know, I guess I wonder if you want to talk about a little bit of your experiences like filling out the death certificate. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not always clear. It was actually very interesting when when we first started on the first little steps of this project, yeah. it was it was early in my second year of residency. So I I just started in that senior resident role, and we were also in clinic together. And you'd brought up this idea, and I had just had this experience. I'd just come off my first week as a senior resident on on night float, where you're taking care of the whole general medicine service by yourself at night. And on the very first night, I had this patient who. He had metastatic pancreatic cancer, and he also had four-valve endocarditis. And at two in the morning or so, we get called that he's having chest pain. We go see him. He is having actively having a massive STEMI. Mm-hmm. And he was DNR, DNI. Basically, the long story short of the night is he ended up transitioning to comfort care, and I pronounced him at about four in the morning. Mm-hmm. About two weeks later, the very nice woman who handles all of the death certificate filling out mm-hmm. at OHSU got in touch with me and I had to go fill out this death certificate because I was the person who pronounced him. And you have to go through this process where you say, okay, what was the immediate cause of death? And mm-hmm. that was clear, he had had a STEMI. Mm-hmm. Okay, what might have led to that? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, he he did have this four valve endocarditis, that was sort of the other most active thing going on. Mm-hmm. Was that directly related to him having a STEMI? I, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. It might have it been, been pro-inflammatory state. Pro-inflammatory right? state. He could have, yeah, flung pl- off a yeah. little uh, embolus that could have clogged his LAD. It's possible. And I think I did say, yeah, that that probably was a contributor. And then was there anything that contributed to that? Well, he did have this metastatic pancreatic cancer, and she said, "Do you think that that was related or a proximal cause?" And again, it was 
not at all clear. Yeah, and then the questions is like, you know, is this, is this large volume pancreas cancer that's growing despite chemotherapy? Is it pancreatic cancer that's small volume that's regressing while on perhaps chemotherapy? Mm-hmm. Is it contributing to a trousseau's or an inflammatory state? Is it not? I mean, these are the kinds of things that you're trying to think about. How long had he spent immunosuppressed? Would he have gotten endocarditis oh, right. if okay, he had yeah. never had pancreatic right. cancer? Right. And yeah. I think I did say, yeah, yeah that we'll call that a contributor also. I see, because you think he's neutropenic from chemotherapy cycles, and that might have led to the endocarditis. Exactly. a propensity for it. Okay, right. Would he have gotten endocarditis if he had never had pancreatic cancer? Right. I and don't know. Probably not in that alternate history. Uh-huh. And these are all kind of stochastic phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's probabilistic that somebody with getting chemotherapy is going to get endocarditis, is going to have these things. Okay. I see where you're going with this. All right. So you're thinking about this and it's, and even talking it out, it's not, uh, it's not going to be crystal clear. No. And so I just had this experience and then we brought up this idea of looking into yeah. the death certificate data and I just thought that does sound like an interesting pro- project. There's yeah. probably a lot of of interesting stuff there if you really dig into the process of how how we build that data. Yeah, and I think that's in fact what you found. And then I want to take tell listeners a little bit over the course of the next year. I think you came to our team meeting and at several points you gave like a maybe 30-minute one-hour presentation about what you had learned in your in your investigative journalism. Um, and, you know, you had the audience. They were riveted. The, the room was riveted. People were, you know, even people who may not have had the same kind of medical background you and I have, uh, people are interested because this is a very kind of interesting thing. And, and what's interesting about it is you wanted to know, in the clinical trials, when somebody dies, how do you say this person died of prostate cancer or not? And in the real world population statistics, how do they say that? And what are some of the temporal changes over time that may affect that one way or the other, may potentially bias it. What do I mean by that? Um, I guess what, we, what we're trying to point out the picture now is, and I think listeners will get the sense, that this is not a black and white exact science. This involves human judgment, and there's gonna be some differences in judgment, and, and you're gonna probably talk a little bit about the algorithms and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and differences in judgment might be okay if those differences in judgment were consistent and the differences in populations were consistent over time. And so that there is perhaps a noisy measurement of a variable, but there, that noise is not dependent on the covariate of time. Mm-hmm. But if the noise and time are somehow interacting together, it's getting, or the direction of the bias is changing over time, then suddenly time trends become kind of questionable. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll talk about that. I guess maybe we'll start by talking about the thing that I think is clearer, which was you know, you took a look at, we'll use the prostate cancer example, the PLCO and the RSPC, um, and you looked at how did they adjudicate death from prostate cancer in these trials? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'd say pretty good, right? What do you think? Yeah, so I guess it, it's probably first helpful to to go through briefly how our national mortality statistics okay, get let's built. let's do that, let's do that. Uh, okay. and, then, and then contrast it with what happens in the trials. Uh, and so, Briefly, the raw data for uh, all of our national mortality <laughs> statistics is individual healthcare providers, doctors, NPs, PAs, depending on the state, filling out those death certificates just like I described uh, and giving their best estimate of what caused this morbid train of events hmm. that led to death. That then goes through a whole series of algorithms that take our natural language and process it into ICD-10 codes. And then it goes through a, a series of algorithms that basically check whether the things that you said caused each other on the death certificate are allowed to be causes of each other. Mm-hmm. 
that data then gets aggregated. There's more uh, kind of sorting out of, of conflicts and it gets compiled and that's, that's how the mortality statistics get built. Mm -hmm. um, there's really no human level check above the level of filing the death certificate. And then when you compare that to the trials, um, they were slightly different uh, in the PLCO trial. Um, Before you say that, I just want to add one thing. You know, you're talking about that automated coding of data, and you're mm -hmm. talking about that morbid train of events, and I think we're going to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. But I really just love this sentence that you've written in, in the paper where you write, um, although highly specific causes of death, such as, quote, sucked into jet engine initial encounter V97.33XA, are straightforward and offer few alternative explanations, diseases with more complex manifestations, such as metastatic malignancies, will have a greater tendency to be over-attributed as the underlying cause of death than those with simpler presence. And I thought that was kind of just a really colorful example that you found. Yeah, and, it, and it's definitely true. With with metastatic cancers that can do almost anything, mm -hmm. you can you can attribute a cause of death to a cancer when the immediate cause was something different, perhaps. Yeah. So now the PLCO. So in the PLCO, you were saying in the, the adjudicated jet in PLCO. So in PLCO, every every death was had a death certificate filed in the process just like I described, but there was also a human reviewer who reviewed the case in more detail and decided whether they agreed with the death certificate or not. And if there was discordance between the death certificate and the human reviewer, it got kicked up another level where two additional human reviewers uh, reviewed it and essentially it was a best of three tiebreaker. Uh -huh. And wherever two people agreed, that was determined as the cause of death. So it was a more rigorous process involving human judgment. In and, the, and it was blinded so that potentially there would be no differential attribution in one arm versus the other. Yes, yes. Yeah. In ERSPC, it was even more rigorous where every death was reviewed by a three-person committee that also employed an algorithm that classified the degree of certainty that a death was truly secondary to prostate cancer. And so they looked at imaging, they looked at labs, they looked at symptom information to determine whether there was progressive metastatic disease and whether that metastatic disease was likely to have actually led to the death rather than that person merely having died with metastatic prostate cancer rather than of it. Uh, and so the processes were, were really markedly different from the way that these gross national mortality statistics get built. And so you have one major difference right off the bat that makes these these sources of data pretty hard to directly compare. There may be other weaknesses about ERSPC, but at least they, they went through some pains to adjudicate the cause of death. Um, I note here it says, you write, quote, of all deaths in the PLCO study, 28% required additional human review because of discordance between death certificate and initial human reviewer. Of the reviewed cases, 3% required a conference call to resolve, resolve discordance. That's not trivial. 28%. We're talking about, about almost one in three. No, not at all. These these questions are often really hard to resolve and even when you have all of the complete data and expert clinicians reviewing it there can be disagreement or uncertainty and you can never really get a clear answer on what caused a death sometimes even after autopsy 
Well, then we're going to come to that. That's another great point you raise in the paper. I'm just going to take a 10-second aside here and just point out that um, I think, you know, some of us have been saying this for a long time, that cause-specific mortality is not the same as death from all causes, um, which is really a nice, clean, objective endpoint. And and I would reiterate my my push for seeing randomized controlled trials measuring death from all cause for interventions performed on healthy people. Okay, now back to your paper, um, because I can go on my soapbox forever. Okay, so that's one thing. Okay, so now you're getting a sense of, you know, what are the kind of extra precautions they're taking in the clinical trials, how those are different than what's happening in the real world. Why don't we talk a little bit about the trumping feature of um, uh, of proximate cause of death? So you, you made this observation about like HIV. Um, there were a few, and senility, uh, in other words, dementia. Um, so if you have a cancer diagnosis, an HIV diagnosis, a dementia diagnosis, some of those are considered proximal to the others, but not vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the uh, there's a book that's got to be over a thousand pages long uh, <laughs> that describes uh, the, these algorithms and what's allowed to cause what. And so you can look up, for example, hemopericardium as a cause of death. That's one of the examples that I use in the paper. and under that, you can find a whole list of conditions that are acceptable possible causes of hemopericardium, sure. more proximate causes in that morbid train of events. And prostate cancer is one of them. Yep. And you can certainly imagine scenarios in which a metastatic prostate cancer causes hemopericardium, that causes tamponade, that causes death. Um, and like we were speaking about before, when you have diseases that can manifest in all sorts of different ways, Prostate cancer shows up as a possible cause of all kinds of potential causes of death, as it should. Whereas when you look at what is allowed to cause prostate cancer mm-hmm. as a cause of death, there's only one, and it's HIV infection. Mm. And so what you've got here, through no poor design of the algorithm, but you have a situation in which it's always going to be possible to overcall prostate cancer as a cause of death. All it has to do is merely be plausible for the algorithm. Uh, whereas you're never gonna really, through algorithmic um, mm-hmm. measures, going to get undercalling of prostate cancer as a cause of death. The, mm. the algorithm is just set up to favor overattribution. That's interesting. Okay, I see what you're saying because under many, 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 many proximate, or sorry, um, and maybe I've been misused proximate earlier. Under many, 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 many like immediate causes of death, um, you'll find somewhere upstream that prostate cancer can be attributed, mm-hmm. um, and and that lends this idea that you know it's potentially possible that somebody who has a prostate cancer that's not doing a whole heck of a lot. Um, maybe falls and breaks a hip and has a hip fracture and then throws a PE. Mm-hmm. And that might all be attributed back to the prostate cancer. Exactly. And like in the, the anecdote that I described where I had to pronounce this patient in the middle of the night, ultimately yeah. that death was, was attributed to pancreatic was cancer. Attributed to pancreatic cancer uh-huh. And actually even attributed to smoking because another further question they had to answer was could smoking have potentially, and it is a risk factor for pancreatic. So it goes down as a pancreatic cancer death and a smoking-related death. I see. Both of those are possible. Both of those could have been completely Off the false yeah. in reality. We don't know what, what really 
caused that man to die. That is interesting. I think you've done a nice job here. Uh, and of course, I think listeners are going to have to read this paper because this paper really gets into things that I, I you know, we, for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to cover. Um, okay, so you're showing that this, um, that this process is an algorithm. Now I'm wondering if you can talk about um, what are some of the things that concerned you that even if you apply the algorithm steadily over time, I guess one thing to point out is there's been times where the algorithm has switched. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the next thing to point out is let's say we apply the same algorithm steadily over time. What is it about the catchment area of where we apply this algorithm, demographic shifts in those catchment areas, um, changes in how people think about these diseases, um, sticky diagnosis bias? What are these kinds of trends that you are concerned with that may make a time trend signal um, problematic? Mm -hmm. So there are three examples that I talk about in the paper uh, that I think are very interesting examples of how it's very difficult to compare 1980 to 2010. Mm -hmm. um, the first is that the algorithm itself gets refined and changed over time. The ICD uh, codes that it's built off of get changed over time also. We've been through several different iterations of those ICD codes. Uh, while this data has been compiled. There's one really, really interesting paper that looked at the cancer registry and the mortality statistics, and it tried to see how well cancers match from the diagnosis in the cancer registry to the death certificates. And they looked at people who had only one cancer mm -hmm. and who died of cancer. Okay, so it's so, so logically. Yeah, okay, yeah. People who only have one cancer and die of cancer should die of that cancer. I would say. And they looked at prostate cancer, and they saw that prostate cancer matches back really well. So 97% of people who die of prostate cancer mm -hmm. as the cause of death, you look back at the cancer registry and you find, they yes, they cancer. had prostate cancer. Gotcha, okay. It doesn't match forward as well. Huh. So you find people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, they die of cancer, but it's some other kind of cancer. You lose 10% of those prostate cancer patients as at the cause of death determination. And these are people who, in the, in the cancer registry, they only had one cancer. They, they didn't have a second cancer no, in the registry. They only had prostate cancer. So one question is, did they somebody not document the other cancer? Mm -hmm. The other question is, is it wrongly being coded because maybe somebody's writing in a haste? Or maybe, maybe honestly, the person in the middle of the night you know, just saw PCA, and they thought that was prostate cancer, but it was pancreas cancer. Or they thought it was pancreas cancer, but it was prostate cancer. You know, they're yeah. reading the chart very quickly. Well, another interesting thing is if, if you look at the kinds of cancers that, that don't match back yeah. as well as they match forward, yeah, yeah. you find that the one of the most prominent examples of that are bone and other soft tissue cancers. Of course, please. So you find more people dying of bone cancer than were originally diagnosed with bone cancer back in the cancer registry. Of and course. so it seems very possible that you've got a patient who dies in the middle of the night. And you talk to the family members and say, what cancer did this guy have? Well, it was metastatic to all of his bones. Yeah, his it bone was, cancer. It was all over his bones. And I think many doctors have the experience of patients telling you a family history of a family member who had bone cancer. And mm -hmm. of course, right. That's very interesting. Okay, so oh, that's one of the three. You had two other examples. Yeah, so I'll that's, let that's, you get that's one yeah. of the three. One of the three, okay. Um, another is this really interesting study that was done on New Mexico data where yeah. they looked at 1985 compared to 1995. 
over which time period an ICD code switch had happened and these mortality algorithms had been revised. And they found that prostate cancer mortality over that time period in New Mexico had gone up by around 30-some percent. And when they looked at how well that algorithm was performing compared to a human reviewer, they found that in that 10-year period, the algorithm had gotten substantially better at both on both measures of over-attribution and under-attribution. I see, right. Less error in both directions, yeah. right? Yeah, compared um, to human reviewer. Yeah. But it had gotten relatively better at under-attribution. So it got better at catching true prostate cancer deaths, so to speak. And so if you think about the change that would have happened, so say you have 100 patients dying of prostate cancer, truly dying of prostate cancer in 1985. Right. And at that time, 10 of them were being undercalled and 10 of them were being overcalled. So okay. you had equal error in both directions. Right, and so right. you still end up with, with 100, with 100 right. but, there's, but there's error there. Okay. If you go to 1995 and now you've got 130, so 30% increase dying of prostate cancer, but now you're only under-attributing one and you're still over-attributing something like 10, you're going to see an artificial increase in prostate cancer mortality because you're still over-calling while you're no longer under-calling, even if you've gotten better in both directions. Mm. And so what that paper estimates is that about half of the observed increase in prostate cancer mortality over that 10-year period was purely artifactual, purely due to the coding changes and, uh, and the ICD changes. I see. So what you're saying is this paper is asking if we're looking at a time trend can a portion of the time trend be simply an artifact of the attribution? And they're mm -hmm. saying that yes. And in this case, in this particular example, this particular city, this particular time period, it's perhaps as high as 50%. Mm -hmm. I and, see. And, and it's because the, the processes that go into creating that data from the raw death certificates, they've just changed. And so you're comparing apples to oranges when you're comparing 10 years ago to today, potentially. It's a bit of a tough concept to wrap your head around, but it, it yeah, it does seem to be real. I, yeah, I, I guess that the part that really just made me just for a second say, whoa, uh, I got that right, is that, yeah, they're improving in both metrics. Mm -hmm. One is improving faster than the other's improving. Yeah. And thus there's a net bias in terms of which way the, um, the ship is tilting. And if you're, I mean, the analogy would be if you're in a boat and you're going straight on ahead, and then you get faster on the left side of the boat and faster on the right side of the boat, but you're getting faster on the left side of the boat even faster. You're going to drift right. Yeah. Okay. Or if you got like a 100-pound weight on one side and a 100-pound okay. weight on the other side, right. then, then you're evenly balanced. You're evenly balanced. You can take away 99 pounds from the left side okay. and only 50 pounds from the right side. And now you've taken scared. away weight from you've both sides. You've taken away weight from but, both sides, but, but you're, you're out of balance. You're out of balance. Gotcha. Okay. That's a good, that's a good analogy too. All right. So, okay. So that's the second of the two. Um... The first of the two is discrepancies seen between forward matching and backward matching, which suggest something is awry. Mm -hmm. The second of the two is the fact that the the that the that the recipe for the cake is changing over time. Mm -hmm. And even if it may be getting better, it's not getting better evenly, and thus there may be overall distortion. What's the third thing? So the third thing to think about would also be that the country has changed significantly mm. over this 30-year-ish period. No, it's not. Let's make it great again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where 
you've had substantial increases in, uh, in particular, the Hispanic population, the Asian American population, um, and those are both populations that have lower prostate cancer mortality than white and black populations that 30 some odd years ago made up a larger proportion of the U.S. population. And so you've, again, you're comparing. But surely, enti- surely these algorithms adjust for ethnic and racial demographics. Dr. Chapa, is that not the case? Well, the, the individual algorithms to determine cause of death do not. Uh-huh. But surely the national aggregate does. No, not very well. Yeah, that's what you found, and that's what blew me away, too. Okay, so then the third thing is that this is a changing nation, although there may be some people and some parties that don't want it to change, but it is a changing nation, whether we like it or not. And so you've got a situation in which, of course, there's going to be error in gross mortality yeah. statistics like this. That, that's a given. It would be one thing if that error was constant across time. That would allow you to yeah. make reasonable comparisons and say, okay, this isn't a perfect algorithm, but when you look at 30 years ago compared to today, it's clearly different. Yeah, It's an entirely different situation when all of the moving parts of those algorithms and the country are also all changing over time. Yeah, and then the... Um um, and then the last thing I think you got to mention about the national, the aggregate statistics we look in the book, is that the incidents come from one place. Mortality comes from this process you're describing. We're mm-hmm. spending all this time on the mortality because that's kind of one of the things that people talk about a great deal, and it's very important. Um, and, and and I think what's worth pointing out is that incidence numbers come from sampling of certain places, yeah. and mortality is, is across the nation. Mm-hmm. I see. So, again, in that sense, incidents and mortality are not really drawn from the exact same groups, but though they're extrapolated to the exact same groups. Exactly, yeah. And and so you just have all of these innumerable variables yeah. that are constantly changing over time that are impossible to completely adjust for. Mm-hmm. And it gets back to the basic problem of, of, of using observational data to try to imply causal claims. Mm-hmm which is just that it doesn't work very well. It's too complicated. There's too many moving parts. Especially when you're talking about, I mean, I guess you're, you're just saying like, all, all this time you're unpacking, what are all the variables that go into how the, the end point is captured? Now you're thinking about all the other things that are happening to society. Mm-hmm. It's, you've got a noisy endpoint. So many things are changing over time. You're talking about broad trends that people are trying to draw it over 20, 30 years. And you're saying that if you really want to say that something we did, X, Y, or Z, is leading to this change, that's a very kind of nebulous claim. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of problem that makes you say something like we need an rct of this <laughs> right i think uh and and we need an rct which has a clean method which has a human group of people that's blinded to the death adjudicating the deaths exactly because that's the way that you're going to sort out this mess yeah. if only we had something like that <laughs> if only we had something um there's some other things that i wanted to mention ah your figure this is a paper that has just one figure in it and and it has bars that are really high and bars that are low. I and and you picked this figure for a reason. What did you want? What do you want this figure to show? So what I'm hoping people get out of that figure is is recognition of the prostate cancer is a huge problem. A lot of people die from it every year, but that in an absolute sense, compared to the total number of U.S. deaths, it remains really small. The so the, the figure shows 
these very tiny little bars that represent prostate cancer deaths uh, over over time compared to total deaths. And while it is a significant difference, it represents a nearly 50% decrease in the overall prostate cancer mortality rate, the bars look about the same size. Right. Yeah, what you're saying is you're looking here at death per 100,000 individuals in an age-adjusted population. Mm -hmm. And what you're seeing is that dying from all causes is just so much more common than dying of prostate cancer that this 50% reduction in prostate cancer death, although it sounds tremendous, in the grand scheme of all the deaths that are being adjudicated, mm -hmm. you can't even visually tell them apart. Yeah, and when you're trying to tell a clear and significant difference between two numbers that are pretty close to each other, yeah. you need really precise You need precise uh, measurement of the endpoint, and, and we don't have that. Exactly. In, in uh, An analogy might be that if you're trying to tell the difference in height between two similarly sized buildings, doing it from a 30,000 foot airplane view is not the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I, I, that's a good one. And the one I was thinking about is if you want to if you want to see who's a faster runner, Chopper or me, you could do a one mile race. You'll get a clear signal there. <laughs> or you could do a three feet race. Yeah. And in three feet, I think I got you, Chopper. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners can look up Chopper's running times. Um, okay. So I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about that. Do we have the discrimination for this kind of little difference? Mm -hmm. Um, okay, then the last thing I wanted to say was um, one of the other things that we talked a little bit about in this paper that may be a bit tangential, but maybe it's not, hopefully hopefully the reader doesn't think it's tangential, is that we have seen over, this, over the many years in this country decline in the fraction of our patients who undergo autopsy at the cause of, uh, to ascertain the cause of death. Mm -hmm. Um, that's probably motivated by a number of reasons. Um, perhaps one of the reasons is the doctors don't offer it as much and that anatomic pathology doesn't have the sort of the strength that that department once had at many academic institutions. And But for whatever the reason, it's not being offered as much, it's not being done as much. Mm -hmm. One of the things that that leads to is um, doctors who are filling out death certificates are probably less often today being able to um, have somebody give them feedback on that down the road and say, you know what, uh, it turns out that when we performed autopsy on your patient, they had a massive PE or something like that. Or, there, or it turned out that actually this patient who you didn't think had metastatic pancreas cancer, when we actually performed the autopsy, we discovered that although it had been undiagnosed, that tiny blip up in the billy was actually the sign that they, they actually did have metastatic pancreatic cancer. They were in the unit. You were unable to get a CAT scan, so you mm -hmm. didn't know that. So anyway, we're in the past, people may have been getting this feedback in a way they're not getting it now. And one of the things we talked about is that that might not in and of itself, those autopsy results, affect the death statistics. But what it might do is operate via this mechanism that if you know a certain fraction of your deaths are going to be audited in autopsy and you're going to get that feedback over time, that may change how you fill out death certificates going into the future. That might have been something that happened to physicians maybe 15, 20, 30 years ago. That's probably something that happens almost infrequently now. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I can't think of in my entire training a time when somebody came up to me and said the autopsy said that it was this and you had written this and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Do you have an example? No. No. It doesn't I've, happen anymore. I've only had one patient, I think, who has died under my care who's even gotten an autopsy. An autopsy. Yeah. Uh, that's how seldom it's performed. Anyway, listeners can take a read of sort of how we made the case for why this might be a time signal, a time varying covariate that affects this sort of this sort of thinking. Um, although it is certainly not a direct one, but perhaps an indirect one. But it's certainly true, I think, that if if 
physicians are never getting feedback in the form of autopsy right. results As on their did. death certificates. Yeah. yeah. How would they ever get better? Yeah. And also, one can imagine. Um, this is very speculative, but one can imagine, and I always joke that um, the the least under-recognized rare disease is Takatsubo, because people <laughs> love to talk about in that in the press every single time. It's Takatsubo, Takatsubo, Takatsubo. It's a great story. It's a great name. It's a great name. I, I can't stand, and it's just constant speculation that some celebrity had Takatsubo. <laughs> what is, and then, and then when you ask the person, like, why are you speculating so irresponsibly? They say, I'm just trying to raise awareness for some. What is this raising awareness? Was Takatsubo out there needing to have its awareness raised? I just don't understand. Anyway, um, but one can imagine that, you know, things like that, that, you know, the way in which you think about prostate cancer, the way in which you think a cancer is a, a chronic indolent disease or a, a lethal malignancy, this will affect how you code um, death certificates, maybe not individually, but on average in sort of a statistical way. Certainly. Okay, so I think we've, we've kind of unpacked some of the central themes here. I think the paper, you know, um, I think you did a great job, but I think the paper gets into like even more sort of things that you found in your investigations. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. And I think it's fascinating in, in a few respects. So I guess first we'll talk about the, the practical way it's fascinating, which is that, you know, for better or worse, people want to be able to use these statistics to draw conclusions about things we're doing it as a healthcare system mm-hmm. or healthcare practice. I think what your analysis has done is it certainly undermined my confidence that that is a sound practice. And I think the title speaks to that. Interpreting the effectiveness of cancer screening from national population statistics, we should have said over time, is it sound practice? And the answer is probably not. That's probably not sound practice. Yeah, we probably should be interpreting these trends with a lot more caution than we do. We probably should be thinking about all of these numbers with really significant error bars around them yeah. and we don't we don't we kind of just accept them as as gospel mm-hmm. and there's there's so much noise and error and bias in them that we should be interpreting them a lot more cautiously than we do i think and and that brings i think that's well put and that brings me to the meta thing that i took away from this project which is god i cannot tell you how many times i've just cited the death rate for mortality is this, it's this, it's this, it's this. I decided it's this. And then, you know, for years. And then suddenly it's like, how do they get that number? And then I started to think about like in my other walks of life, in other parts of medicine, um, all these things that I say, this is the ejection fraction is 55%. Mm-hmm. It is this. How do they get that number? What's the variability in how people would read that scan? What's the variability in over time? What's the, how does it depend on your, how hydrated you are? And how does it correlate with outcomes you care about? And all these sorts of questions start to come to your mind. And the more you start to think about, you know, for anyone who does research, how do you get the data that's every data point that you're analyzing? I think you get a lot of humility. That limitation section writes itself in your paper later on. Mm-hmm. Um, that you start to realize that um, once you know how something is made, you may um, find it less appetizing. Yeah, and and when you start stacking these noisy measures on top of each other and using them to inform how you interpret other noisy measures, <laughs> right? It you kind of can't go too far into it, or else it starts feeling you start feeling lost. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's well put. Yeah, you start feeling. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of a good. I had a good example recently. Oh. You know, uh, the example that it makes me come to mind, and, and, and I'll be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this out there, but um, 
I think, uh, you know, this is very, very speculative. But I was, you know, recently in some arguments with some people online about like direct to consumer advertising. And as you know, only the United States and New Zealand has direct to consumer advertising and no other civilized nation even has it because it doesn't make sense that something that's prescribed by a doctor has direct to consumer advertising. It clearly are for drug categories that may have dubious benefits of which there may be rampant disease mongering and indication drift and all these kinds of things. And then this person said like, oh, let me give you a paper and it shows that, you know, over time in markets that had more direct-to-consumer advertising of certain SSRIs, there were fewer missed days of work um, in certain companies than, um, you know, um, in markets that had a delayed introduction of those SSRI ads. And this is like some economic Ember paper. And then the, then I immediately thought of like the work you, you had done. And I was like, okay, um, you know, they're measuring like, you know, they're trying to connect like the ad to this thing that's way, way far away, which is like how many days somebody showed up at work. Mm-hmm. And presumably the intermediate is that if you get an antidepressant, you're going to be less depressed and you're going to be more likely to show, show up to work. And I was like, in randomized trials, I'm not even aware if antidepressants in any study or in pooled studies have actually showed that they can reduce how many days people miss from work. That That's one question. And then it's noisy because what percent of people are going to like incrementally take an antidepressant because of this and how many of them will have actually had the diagnosis. And I started to think about, and then how are you even measuring the days off work and you know, who's the population you're exposed to? And I started to think that this has got to be like a study that says if a tornado's in Kansas, a butterfly flaps its wings in Portland, yeah. you know, it's got to be trying to connect these two dots that are so far away. And then you think about, you know, you got two dots that are really far away measures that are poorly measured and you've got like so many motivated investigators with statistical software trying to probe these relationships Mm -hmm. and come up with some story that they can write up and sell and you got to think that um, all of the noise and hubris and and motivated um, reasoning and p-hacking and harking that goes into the process has to outweigh any sort of true signal there might be Um, anyway this is kind of a meta rant yeah it comes back to the fact that we have brains that love to knit stories together Mm. and and we love to knit together the stories that we want to believe and with so many of these observational studies if you really dig into questions about how does that data point get generated what's what are the error bars that really should be around that Mm -hmm. how are you chaining these imperfect yeah and yeah, yeah noisy data sources together to tell this story and if you actually teased it all apart I think that in a lot of cases you would find that 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 that's what it is it's a story that someone is is knitting together leaving out the parts that are inconvenient and uh, and we should probably have less confidence in those sorts of stories than than we tend to that's so well put and I'm just gonna end this podcast by by telling you a little story that I tell myself it's a story about a young Dr. Chapa who trained at Stanford and the University of Chicago under Dr. Adam Sifu, um, where he gained a few skills, but of course came to OHSU um, with, uh, with very little research thinking uh, that under my tutelage uh, was honed into a diamond. But I think <laughs> <laughs> that's a story that I, I used to tell myself, but I think listeners of the podcast will see there may be some flaws in my storytelling. <laughs> and... <laughs> And perhaps, perhaps at the end of the day, uh, the the final pathway uh, uh, didn't add too much. Dr. Chapa, 
thanks so much for, for doing this work. I think I learned, as often the case, but especially the case, I, I learned much more uh, about this from what you told me than I had ever learned before. Uh, and you delighted, I think, not just me, but you know everyone who works on this team. Um, and uh, you know you made it really interesting. And I think you wrote just such a terrific paper that I hope people read and I hope has you know a long citation trail. Um, and I hope you get get all the credit you deserve here because um, it's really a well done sort of exploration of something that we all kind of just hang our hat on and that the more you look and you probe and you find all these layers in which um, you know confidence is eroded. So thanks so much for coming on the plenary session stage. We hope to have you back. Thank you so much. Thanks for working on the paper with me and thanks for having me. All right, I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Emerson Chen. Emerson is soon to be assistant professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. Emerson is a practicing GI oncologist focused in the gastrointestinal malignancies. He's also a budding health services researcher, and in the last month has published not one, but two first author papers in GM internal medicine on the, well, on two topics. One, the speed of surrogates, and second, the magnitude of benefit of response rate when it was used for initial drug approval. Emerson, thanks so much for coming on the plenary session stage. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. It's an honor to have to have you here. So, you're coming on to take a second crack at polo, because you had the chance to listen to my little rant about it, which appeared on the last episode of Plenary Session. And you mentioned a couple things to me which I hadn't thought about. Um, But I guess I'll summarize my initial rant. The more I think about it, you know, polo is a randomized control trial where you take people who are um, responding to platinum-based therapy, mostly fulfirinox, who have pancreatic cancer and germline BRCA mutant status, and you inappropriately have them halt that fulfirinox to be to have a 50% chance of being randomized to a sugar pill where responses continue to occur on sugar pill at 12% which is something that I thought I was the first person to see but you're saying somebody at the conference mentioned this yeah so even though in the inclusion criteria is uh, for people who have gone at least 16 weeks of fulfirinox uh, like therapies there's a number of patients that got more than four months of fulfirinox or uh, platinum Mm -hmm. based therapy there are Mm -hmm. many people that have gone beyond the six months so i think when we interpret the trials and when we do have the patient before us we do have to consider it might be a good idea to really continue the fulfirinox chemotherapy regimen rather than stopping for a maintenance strategy but but of course if you have the patient that can't continue on fulfirinox then that discussion comes in. I see. So that's how that's the place you see it. I think that's a much more fair interpretation. And then the other thing we were you were pointing out is, well, my my reading of that trial, and I didn't know anyone else had said it, which was that that twelve percent response rate on the placebo arm. It's sort of like when you get a train moving down the tracks, and then you stop pushing on the train. It's still going to keep rolling for a long way. The inertia of the movement, and I see, sort of see that as the inertia of the fulfirinox. So then they're randomized, of course, to the PARP inhibitor or or placebo. And there's a PFS benefit, but of course there's no OS benefit. I realized yesterday I misstated something. I said the median survival is 18 months in the clinical trial. That's right. But what I was wrong about was the median survival from diagnosis and initial treatment to fulfirinox was another five months plus. So something like a 23-month median survival from when they were diagnosed with pancreas cancer. 
Yeah, and I think uh, there were other uh, physicians that had pointed out that um, this cohort of patients are people who have germline BRCA Mm -hmm. uh, mutation, Mm -hmm. but they also responded to therapy. And these are people, in a way, they're kind of destined to live longer than your average pancreatic cancer patient. And that's that's in part due to the biology of their cancer, but maybe also in part due to the age in which they have the onset of pancreatic cancer, because they appear to be quite young in this paper. Yeah, and so there are people that actually in the cohort, they came, came in with a known germline BRCA. So they weren't um, newly diagnosed and then um, were tested. They were already part of a BRCA known um, genetic family and um, already had no mutation before they um, started the Furanox. And see. that and they included that they included that uh, information in the in the New England Journal paper. Now one of the things you mentioned to me, which I hadn't known about and I didn't cover in the podcast, was Velaparib, which is another PARP inhibitor. What do you know about Velaparib? Uh, so uh, it's it's another PARP inhibitor, and there were um, other trials also looking at um, looking at PARP as a strategy, but in combination with chemotherapy. And uh, those trials uh, weren't able to show um, show an advantage in their endpoints, and there were those were also presented in the, um, the GI abstracts. I see. So what you're saying is. Other PARP inhibitors in pancreas cancer did not show benefit in other clinical trials. Uh, but they were all used in a different way, like in combination with Fulfox mm-hmm. and Fulfury mm-hmm. and in combination with chemotherapy and mm-hmm. um, used in the second line. And I see. None of, those, not, none of those trials had the wisdom to take people who were actively responding to chemotherapy, halt that chemotherapy, and then randomize them to that or sugar pill as a maintenance strategy looking for a PFS benefit, or they might have one too. But I guess it's important to know... Because, you know, when you start to think about the probability any class of drugs works, you need to think about not just the particular agent you're looking at. You should look at, you know, that class of agent broadly across that tumor type. That's something that I should have done in my preparation. But let me ask you something about Velaparib. Were any of those trials in the germline um, BRCA mutant population with pancreas cancer? Or were they sort of in an unselected group? Uh, I'll have to go back and look at the inclusion criteria more closely. I think those may have included um, beyond just the germline. Okay, so we have done a quick fact check, and here's what we found real quick. I find a phase two trial of Velaparib in previously treated BRCA mutated pancreas ductal adenocarcinoma, which was appeared in the European Journal of Cancer in 2008, and it notes that Veliparib was well tolerated, but no confirmed response was observed. That's a 0% single agent response rate which is something people listen to this podcast will know what I think about. Um, and then, Emerson, you found what? A couple abstracts here at ASCO that were also presented. What do you, what do you see here? Uh, so one is in combination with Fulfox, and the other is in combination with Fulfury in the second line. I see. And uh, these ones included both germline and uh, somatic BRCA mutations. Correct. But I guess, to be honest with you, I mean, you know, a somatic BRCA mutation is still going to make the hypo, you know, theoretically it should make a PARP inhibitor uh, have the synthetic lethality it needs to, to get the job done. But be that as it may, um, this was the only trial that looked at the maintenance setting. So I guess overall, um, you take a, a slightly more even-handed stance, and yeah. you'd say that for the patient who's been on Fulfirinox for a long time. So you, you would agree with me. You don't want to stop Fulfirinox if somebody's tolerating well and their tumors continue to shrink. You want to keep giving it, at least if you've only given four, four months of it. 
Right. If you're between a four and six months, they're tolerating well, their tumors are shrinking, there's absolutely no reason you want to stop. That would be foolhardy. But let's say they're six months or they're past six months or, you know, some of these patients in the trial that had gotten 20 months of therapy, something like that. Let's say you get a patient out there a long time, and then let's say they're starting to get that oxaliplatin neuropathy. That's the person in whom you might want to have a conversation about, look, should I put them on a lap rib? Yeah, that's correct. I think um, when a patient has stopped or wants to stop chemotherapy and rather than a chemotherapy break, then that discussion of Olaparib comes in. Um, and of course, with the germline mutation um, and has continued response to chemotherapy. But I do want to just remind the audience regarding the, so in the ovarian cancer trial, mm-hmm. um, so the randomized control trial using the maintenance strategy, mm-hmm. they were able to show uh, uh, an OS advantage in addition to a PFS advantage. Yeah. So there is a there's precedent a, for that. Right. But and the other thing about ovarian is it's it's almost it's it, it is actually a maintenance setting because we used to do a fixed course of therapy and then they truly did you know go into a maintenance setting. Right. Whereas in pancreas cancer, it's the first I've ever heard of maintenance. It's not yeah. something that we talked a lot about before. And another and looking at the breast cancer trials, they were actually compare to later line chemotherapy rather than placebo and it was also they did not use the maintenance strategy in metastatic breast cancer yeah and uh and then the criticism of the breast cancer trials of course is that the investigator choice control arm excludes the one choice that investigators would want which is platinum which is uh, thought to be particularly active in triple negative breast cancer yeah, but at least they allowed yes. um, a chemotherapy, and it was uh, it was not in the maintenance setting. Either. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. And I guess the other thing is, you know, so then I was thinking about it, you know, like how would I design a trial if I really wanted to, like, you know, give somebody something useful? I guess what I would say is um, the way I would design a trial is I would try to, you know, sequence people sometime, you know, during their first course of treatment, so let we can allow people to get full furanox and then plan for a randomization at the second line point. So um, when patients have progressive disease on fulfirinox, um, who happen to have germline BRCA mutations, they will be randomized to the investigational agent, which would be Olaparib, or investigator choice um, chemotherapy, um, You know, which these days there's probably a, a fair bit of heterogeneity about what people think is best. And some people I know maybe even thinking nabpaclitaxel kind of containing regimens might be suitable there, or maybe they're thinking gemcitabine alone, or maybe thinking 5-FU alone or something like that. What do you think about that strategy, which is we should have, maybe we should have thought about doing just a a nice, clean, second-line treatment trial for pancreas cancer for people, germline BRCA mutants, who happen to have gotten um, a platinum-containing regimen on the front end. I think that's where some of the trials might go in the future, and once... um you know, if if the regular approval for this drug um, is favorable, then this allows uh, PARP inhibitors to be used more easily in trials as well if it's approved in this space. So yeah. I think that's where some of the future trials might, might look at. I see. So what struck you at ASCO that really, really caught your interest in ASCO moving away from Polo? I think one of the things is that... Um, Whenever we get interim results, sometimes we might jump into conclusions a little bit too early. Um, and um, a lot of these presentations, they do have simultaneous papers, and it's helpful to always look in the supplements as well to get additional information. And I think one of the things looking at um, the, the presentation and the paper um, is that uh, sometimes some of the information that you really 
want to know is not reported or not known yet. Um, and for example, for the laparib, uh, I really want to know, you know, how many patients are um, have adequate follow-up so that we're more certain of the survival data. Um, mm -hmm. And it's possible that some of the people that are censored might just because they have such a short follow-up and it's possible that the survival data might might be completely different. And I think for this use of maintenance, it's really going to depend on what the overall survival. Um, you'll see that in the censoring um, data that there's a lot of people in the placebo and on the drug arm are have a very short follow-up, assuming that because they probably have short follow-up and are not lost to follow-up. Mm -hmm. And the curve may very well be different once they have the final analysis. And so I think sometimes we jump into conclusions a little bit too early. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we just have to recognize what the data we have and um, wait for the final data to make conclusions so that we don't sort of, oh, not offer or offer a laparib now and then change our mind completely later. Um, yeah. because of updated data. I think that's a fair point. I guess uh, the only thing that would give me pause is even if they find that OS benefit, I would wonder, would that OS benefit have existed had the control arm gotten enough platinum therapy you know, to really drive their tumor to maximum response? And that's a question that I'll have lingering. Let me ask you about a couple other trials real quick. Keynote 224, Pembro versus placebo, second line HCC. Uh, Negative. Negative, Emerson. It was <laughs> negative. You were there telling me that this is a drug with a, what was the single agent response rate in cyclone HCC, 13%? Or was it 11%? Well, 15 to 20%. 15 to 20%? Or 10 to 20%. Okay, 10 to 20. Okay, sure. now I'll give you that. Okay. So, and then what happened? It can't be placebo? What's going on in this trial? Well, I think we're, we're seeing more and more um, large randomized control trials that are um, using multiple primary endpoints, and they are, of course, having to split their, their um, alpha. alpha error. Yeah. And um, some, some of them were astutely using more um, hierarchy to try to preserve their alpha error. Yeah. Um, but sometimes some studies don't. And um, if the, had they only used just OS, then they would have met their... Uh, pre-specified bar, mm -hmm. but they uh, split the alpha error into both PFS and OS, so mm -hmm. then their bar be became more stringent. Yeah, so I guess I would say that that's a that's a that's a trialsmanship point that I that I will concede to you, which is that, you know, I I think that and it's kind of under discussed, but um, if a primary endpoint is overall survival in some of these clinical studies, which you know I think you and I see some advantages to that in many in many settings. There's some advantages even to the manufacturer, to the trialists who are looking for a positive result. And one is that you seem to have a lot, you can use all your alpha for one primary endpoint. Um, the other advantage is, you know, you don't always have to have a whole bunch of protocol specified scans at certain time points that may not be in accordance with standard of care and may be costing trialists a fair amount of money. So I think that's a good point. Okay, let me ask you for your quick take on another one. Um, it's called Tribe 2. Can you tell us a little bit about it? What's your quick take on Tribe 2? Yeah, this is a, it's a really interesting trial done in, I believe, Italy um, by the group that had looked at um, Tribe 1 in the past. And um, we know that Fulfox Fury Bev is a uh, triplet chemotherapy regimen plus a biologic. And um, it had shown um, 
PFS and OS benefit in the past, um, but in this trial it was compared to a doublet chemotherapy, so Fulfury, Bev, um, followed by maintenance, followed by re, uh, Fulfox, um, Bev, and then maintenance, and we saw there was a gain in PFS in the when it's um, in the first line, but the PFS in the second line seems to be similar between the triplet and doublet. But mm-hmm. overall, there is that overall survival benefit that's confirmed in this randomized controlled trial. And the overall survival benefit is about what magnitude? I think it's about three months. I see. So that's interesting to me. So the PFS one is better with the triplet versus doublet, no question about it. That seems to be intuitive. Um, PFS2 is, you're saying, neck and neck. Right. And I think it probably has to do with that when someone start with yeah. um, some larger tumor burden, maybe, and if whether you're young, a motivated patient, then a more aggressive approach seems to provide a longer survival benefit. And so it, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, if, even though this is done in Europe, and I think this is now... One, I think, practice that we can incorporate when we see the right patient who's, who may be able to tolerate more aggressive chemotherapy approach. So you're saying for the appropriate younger patient, you consider this. But I guess my question to you is, how do you explain the PFS2 is comparable, but the OS is better? Well, I think, I don't know for sure, but uh-huh. we know that at least in the, when you are thinking about the second-line therapy, then there's really not much difference when you're trying to do the triplet versus doublet, but it seems like most of the benefit is probably gained from starting at a triplet versus the doublet. Okay. I mean, the other thing that it doesn't address is that we don't know what's the contribution of um, the bevacizumab in both in this study, because it was used in both arms. It was extended in first line and second line. And so in a full Fox Fury based regimen, we don't know, um, we don't know how much contribution that bevacizumab is really adding here. Oh, that's a good point. That's right. Yeah. You don't know what bevacizumab is adding because there's no way anyone's going to do this without giving Bev. Uh, bevacizumab has such a complex and controversial history in this tumor type that is beyond the scope of this brief quick take. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on this podcast and giving us your thoughts which are excellent as always. You you also had the chance to go to the educational session uh, on endpoints and drug approval, where your own research was discussed a fair bit. Are you going to continue to do work in health services research, Dr. Chen? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an excellent way to really get to know the how the trials are designed and how they're reported. And I think it's important for um, the audience, even if you're not participating in um, and involved in the clinical research to be able to voice your opinion about how things are done. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a way to um, give back and so that we design better trials that are more patient-oriented and um, have less conflict of interest and Mm -hmm. that will help patients and help patients to decide um, to go on a therapy or not. I noticed that ever since you started doing all this work on regulatory trials that in our weekly meetings, you know a lot, and so sometimes you correct me when I misspeak. But I miss the good old days when I was allowed to misspeak freely and not be corrected. So I miss that, Emerson. Yeah, as long as you uh, pronounce Cape Cytobin correctly. Oh, you... <laughs> that, was a, that was a deal breaker for you GI oncologists, huh? Cape Cytobin. I call it Zalota now, and I'll tell you something. That's a negative study, okay? It's one of three negative studies. Okay, I could go on and on. All right, well, thank you for coming on this podcast, Emerson. 
you've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.